Hello, listeners. Here's the last of four short introductions to the principal characters of my forthcoming novel, A Tumblin' Down. Carmichael Abney went from a religionless childhood direct into the life of a pastor's wife, and she even managed to score a teaching job at a state college. Home, husband, children, career, she has it all, which is what makes it so extremely irritating to her that she is haunted by what might have been. If you'd like to follow Carmichael in her struggle to be at one with herself, then visit www.sarahhenleykeywilson.com forward slash store and subscribe to the serialization of A Tumblin' Down, which starts on June 6th. And now, on with the show. Carmichael blinked her way into the dawn, diffusing over hills that shrugged and hunched across the horizon. The maples had that tired, late-summer look about them, dusty, overgrown leaves just waiting for the first hint of cool to trigger their color change and fall to kindly death. The meadow grass alone remained fresh and lively. Carmichael sauntered through it barefoot, dandelion seeds sticking to her dewy toes. During daylight hours, the yard and its fraying edges belonged to the children, but before they woke, it was hers. She walked straight uphill to the edge of the state forest, tracing unawares the same path as her boys, to nestle in the sugar maple copse and gaze out over the Shibboleth Valley, the bottle-green Nekamisto River turning corkscrews through it. A city kid, Carmichael never tired of the stillness or the greenness. The village was picture-postcard perfect, at least as seen from her perch atop the hillside, what with its colonial covered bridge and vintage 20s theater, and the school and the college and the courthouse all in matching red brick with white trim, as if they'd sprung out of the same Playmobil set. Up close, Shibboleth teetered on the edge of run-down, the peeling paint, scrubby lawns, slumping barns, and abandoned machinery of rural deprivation. Still, countryside poverty was charming, surely on account of not being urban poverty. Carmichael felt affection toward it, however much her professorial mind told her not to romanticize. A good life. Husband, children, the beginnings of a career, a green and pleasant place. It was always in these moments of settling into happiness that the alternate Carmichaels began to appear. The real and original Carmichael allowed herself the rueful thought that, if hers were an actual disorder, some fill-up of brain chemistry or neurologically encoded trauma, she could get help, take medicine, talk it out with a nodding, prodding therapist. But hers were existential hauntings, not psychiatric ones. California Carmichael came first. She always did. Even her title made the real Carmichael cringe with embarrassment. This one wore a sleeveless sundress, a garment that was tolerable only about six days out of the whole shibboleth summer. Her hair was long and dark brown like the originals, but streaked with gold and swishy like in a commercial. Her skin was tanned unbrokenly instead of spottily. She looked younger and had no midriff stretch from three children. She'd had three children, of course, but something about the smog or a diet of grapefruit and sprouts drove off the lingering lumpiness. She plopped down next to Carmichael. Do you remember? She began. Of course I do. California Carmichael was never deterred by the real Carmichael's rudeness. We were 14, and it was the farthest we'd ever been from home. Mom and Dad were always such East Coast snobs. New York snobs, the real Carmichael corrected her. 
No one's more parochial than a New Yorker. Nothing worth seeing west of the Delaware, the other quoted, and Philadelphia marking the near end of the Midwest. But there was that fad among their friends to visit Napa Valley Vineyards and L.A. movie studios, so we spent that one July tooling around California. Remember how after we arrived at LAX and were riding in the rental car, we kept saying, I know this place. I've been here. It's like coming home. And mom and dad just laughed. We thought it was some kind of mysterious, tremendous intimation of a past life. I think it may have been our first glimmering of religion. But then she laughed. It was just different enough from the real Carmichael's laugh to unnerve her. Then we realized it was only TV. We'd been seeing California on TV all our lives and never even knew it. No wonder it felt like home. But it sure ruined TV, Carmichael said. I can't watch anything set anywhere other than California anymore because it's so obviously fake. Like you, she added sharply. California Carmichael smiled with Pacific calm. Then why do you still wish for me, she said, rising and dissipated. I don't know, said Carmichael to the orange hawkweed crushed beneath her heel. Only because you could have been. California Carmichael was the easy, obvious alternate self. She came first because she was easiest to dismiss, and the real Carmichael couldn't take her seriously enough to hold her off. But she was the gateway alternate, and the others followed without fail. Maybe it was on account of its being a Sunday morning, a morning with church, and with church an anthem from the choir. So this morning they came as a choir. A naggle of alternate Carmichael singing one song of alternate existence after another. A dissonant orchestra, each trying to lure her to its own version of herself. One Carmichael had gone into the sciences instead of literature, as a beloved high school teacher had fruitlessly urged. One had gone to a different college, indistinguishable from the one she did attend and its boilerplate prestige, but it sent her down different paths with different companions. One sang of staying on in France after her semester in Montpellier, not to undertake the trite pattern of falling in love with Paris and a Parisian, but to recapitulate her present rural life in the fashion of a paysan, garlanded with lavender plaits about her head and an orange-blossom-scented pompe à l'huile in hand. A soprano trilled society wife, as so many of her college friends had become despite their erstwhile commitment to busting glass ceilings, too fond as they were of luxuries and low-conflict lunches. A mezzo-soprano moved her to Boston and a fine old home with a corner tower and elegant dinner parties that nurtured sophisticated conversations about art and philosophy. Then an irritated alto made her a philanthropist who threw it all away to serve somewhere vaguely exotic and indefinably risky, where she could be helpful, even heroic. They beckoned to her with her own fingers, in her own voice, inviting her to merge with them. Individually, each sang in a thin and wobbly voice, just as Carmichael did in real life. Individually, no particular life was more compelling than another. But altogether, in chorus, they posed the insidious question over and over, Why this life? Out of a hundred or a thousand alternatives, how did you end up with this one? Are you, right now, the very best soloist in this whole choir? Carmichael stuck her fingers in her ears to make the symbolic point, though it didn't silence their noise. 
Their question was not hers. It was not one she cared to ask. Left alone, she loved her life. The alternates tormented only on account of their sheer possibility. They didn't take the hint, didn't budge, didn't shut up. She stood up and ran back down through the wet grass to get ready for church. Dying to know what becomes of the Abney family? Then head on over to sarahhenlickywilson.com slash store and subscribe. And before long, you'll hear a discussion between me and Dad about this novel and the strange eruption within it of our old nemesis, the Book of Joshua.